The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of Prosecuting Donald Trump, live at Georgetown Law. I'm Mary McCord, and I'm here with Andrew Weissman. We are actually, we're thrilled to be here. This is our first ever live recording of the podcast. We are so happy to be doing this in my home turf, which is why I got to do the opening, uh, Georgetown Law. We're welcome the Georgetown community here, and we are excited to be able to actually take some of your questions at the end of the podcast today. So appreciate that probably most of you, I hope, are regular listeners, and if not, you've been keeping up. We will obviously be talking about criminal cases against the former president, Donald Trump. What else would we talk about? We're going to focus in particular today on the two cases related to the January 6th efforts and everything leading up to it to overturn the 2020 election. So that is the federal case being prosecuted just a few blocks away at the District Court for the District of Columbia. That case, of course, was brought by the special counsel, Jack Smith. It charges only Donald Trump, and it charges him with three different conspiracies, all related to the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Now, of course, there are numerous unindicted co-conspirators in that case, all of whom we've pretty much identified, but he is the only one set to go to trial in that case. The other January 6th related case, of course, is one that Andrew and I often call like a subset of the federal case, and that is the Fulton County, Georgia state prosecution brought by District Attorney Fonnie Willis against not just Donald Trump, but Donald Trump and 18 co-conspirators alleging a vast RICO conspiracy. Did so- I tell you, since I only tell anecdotes, um, we were talking beforehand that like my ratio of substance to anecdotes is like two anecdotes <laughs> to one substance. And I'm going to keep track today. because. <laughs> so so my anecdote on acronyms is um, Janet Napolitano when she was head of DHS, Department of Homeland Security. Got that right. Yep. Um, and that she... Um, announced at the beginning of her tenure to her entire staff that if you make it through a meeting with her without using an acronym, she will buy you a case of beer. <laughs> she won. <laughs> Never had to do it. No one got through a meeting with without you. It's kind of impossible yeah, in this yeah, town. In the federal government and, or, and in Washington, D.C. Yeah. So, okay, in that case, in Georgia, we have 19 co-defendants, all about really the efforts to, in this case, overturned the will of the Georgia voters, right, as a subset of the entire 2020 electorate. These cases raise some common issues. The defendants in both cases have been indicating they're raising defenses of immunity, immunity from prosecution, based on being the president, being a federal official, being a presidential elector. We'll talk a little bit about that. But they also have really pending constant developments. We've had new motions filed in the last 24 hours. We have a hearing in Fulton County, Georgia, that will begin almost the minute that this podcast ends. I think the judge would want to be respectful of the podcast. Yes. So he's scheduling this to, you know, to start when with, we as, say, we, as we wrap yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. it'll be okay. perfect. So we'll talk about all of that. And what we won't really talk about because we just don't have time and because these cases are just kind of sitting in a holding pattern right now are the two other cases against Donald Trump, right? We have the New York prosecution by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg of Donald Trump for 37 different cults of falsifying business business records relating to the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. That case is set for trial in late March of 2024. And we have, of course, the other federal 
charges brought in the Southern District of Florida against Mr. Trump for mishandling of classified information and other very highly top secret national defense information and against he and two of his aides for then obstructing the investigation into uh, the mishandling of classified information. That case is scheduled for late May of 2024. But right now, those are not the cases where there's a flurry of activity. Those cases are the January 6th related cases. So with that table setting, also a term that is used in the federal government all the time, let me set the table. Level level set. Level set, level level set. set. No, I just want the wave tops, Andrew. Oh, Yeah, yeah. I've been out of Washington too long. Yeah, yeah, you're forgetting these. So welcome to Georgetown. Thank you. It's great to be here. I was telling Mary about this yesterday because I hadn't been back here I think only once since 2019 when the Mueller investigation uh, came back. And this time I could come back and I didn't feel like complete sort of like PTSD hives. (laughs) But I've lived here for 10 years. The work kept on bringing me back. So I was on Enron. I came back. uh, General counsel of the FBI. General counsel of the FBI. I then was in the halcyon days. I was the chief of the fraud section which is just, it was so great. Um, like, you don't have to worry about politics. You could just do your job. And then I spent two years on the Mueller investigation. Um, so it just kept on sort of pulling me back. He says he's a New Yorker, but really we know better. Yeah, so that's what a friend of mine, when I remember saying um, to a friend of mine, I was like, you know, well, I'm an inveterate New Yorker. And a friend of mine from New York goes, not anymore. <laughs> and I was like, okay, time to go home. So... On the train coming down here, I was thinking about this surreal nature, like that's in sort of my personal journey, because, you know, we're one, you and I never, ever thought this is what we'd be doing post-government or doing this because we're talking about the former leader of the free world facing 91 felony counts and four separate indictments, which is really surreal. And... The nature of what we're about to talk about, whether it's in Georgia or in D.C. in the January, so-called January 6 cases, you know, when I think about the Mueller investigation, that was an investigation with respect to the last election and dealing with foreign interference and an effort by uh, Russia specifically to foment dissent in this country whether it is distrust in the government, whether it is misinformation, not believing what people say, uh, suppressing the vote, particularly the black vote, all of that was very, very sophisticated, but coming from the external to the United States inward and what these indictments about and what we're actually still living in. I mean, it's not just historical is that this is all taken root and we're dealing with it domestically. It, like the, everything that we were focused on seems so, so quaint mm-hmm. because I'm not saying that it caused where we are, but it's like almost not necessary anymore for, I and mean, that's going to still continue, but all of those efforts. It's like the the problems yeah. inside the house. Those same foreign adversaries, like we always expect election to election that they'll try to meddle. They meddle right. in sort of unprecedented ways, partly because of technology and because of who the candidate was and other things like that. But it was coming from our adversaries yeah, exactly. outside of the United States primarily. And what we've seen, what these two January 6th cases are about really is the domestic efforts right here at home. We don't even, you know... In many ways, the foreign threat is not even the most significant threat. And to me, that also, I mean, that's sort of my trajectory, yours. I mean, I'm like seeing people here from ICAP. um, ICAP. ICAP in the house. Right. So which is like, you know, your effort to deal with that sort of domestic issue that's that's going on here. Yeah. I mean, some of our work is protecting against political violence, suing unlawful private militias, groups like the Oath Keepers and others, and suing fraudulent electors in Wisconsin, like we've talked about. So, yeah, the threat and, you know, that threat also, and, you know, we want to get into the cases, but this domestic threat is also what has caused 
the need for things like the Department of Justice Election Threats Task Force, which has, you know, 14 uh, investigations uh, and prosecutions pending against people for threatening election officials for doing their jobs, nine of which have resulted in convictions, including some pretty serious sentences when you're talking about oftentimes online threats, sentences of, of two and a half and three and a half years, um, but also threats against the judges now grand jurors, witnesses. So this is a whole new environment that these cases are taking place in that we haven't typically experienced in the past. That's like a perfect segue to the Georgia case because it's a very skillful use of the threats with respect to Ruby Freeman and Seamus. And those, I mean, for former prosecutors, the idea that you are very forward leaning on threats to people who are doing their job as part of the electoral process is so critical. I and mean, if there's any deterrent value, any, that's the case where you want to bring it. And I think, I think actually think the strongest and sort of most compelling part of the Georgia case are those allegations because, well, the, all of it, whether it's the federal or state January 6th case has something we're used to, which is an abstract victim, which is all of us in this room. Democracy is the victim. That's obviously something that people will take seriously, but then having an actual person who is victimized as a prosecutor, it brings it home. You know, obviously Ruby Freeman and, and Shay Moss have, have a civil suit, which is advancing rapidly. These to... were the two election workers in Georgia oh, that yeah. had just lies made up about them for just doing their jobs. And that caused them to be really mercilessly threatened and harassed. Yeah. So obviously that this, the federal civil case is now just going to go to to the damages, damages. Um, portion. And then to me, there's like, if I had to say like a misstep by people who were trying to overthrow the will of the people, it's by attacking Dominion, attacking Ruby Freeman and Shay Moss, people who can sue civilly, they open the door to those kinds of lawsuits. I mean, that would, E. Jean Carroll yep. in a Massive different context is, right. is the judge I just was it today or last night yep. just issued a decision that if for summary judgment on her second defamation claim. So that's also just going to damages. So those are really fantastic suits. It relates a lot to what you're talking about at ICAP, yep. which is like using the civil law yep. to have accountability, which is huge. I mean, people care about, you know, money can have an effect, but yep. let's turn to the, the criminal part in Georgia. Yep. Yep. It's like, to me, we were trying to figure out ways to say this, which don't involve curse words, but it's a little <laughs> bit of a, let's just say it's a, a bit of a mess. Yeah. And you can fill in, you know, your favorite Two curse words. Two words, start right. with S, H, right. but okay. Yeah. Um, so... The way I think about Georgia, because there's, there's just, there's kind of too much going on because there's just too many defendants and there's, there's federal litigation and there's state litigation. And, and unless you're like us, we're, we, you know, it's hard someone to keep told, up. Even someone told me to not to up. say this because it's like, we're nerdy. It's like we, we read all this stuff. So the way I think about it is you have two separate tracks going on and a lot of unknowns. So. On the one hand, as you just talked about, the, you know, the state level, you have Judge McAfee, who's got to decide with respect to 19 people, who's going to go to trial and when. And the who can be, is it going to be Chesbro, who wants to go to trial quickly? Is it going to be Sidney Powell? One of the lawyers, I think I might put that in, in scare quotes. And, yeah, just who wants to go to trial quickly, but not with Chesbro or um, any of the other Yes, right, exactly. 18 code Basically, Chesbro is like, I want to go to trial. I want to go to trial quickly, but I don't want to go to trial with Mary. Yeah, that's right. Um, right. And She's by the way, too crazy. And one of the things that Chesbro said is like, I don't even know her, which, by the way, is not how the law works. I mean, you know, the way RICO works is like, you know, you don't have to know all of your co-conspirators. I mean, you will know some of them, but that is just not a prerequisite. So at the state level, you have Chesbro saying, I want to go quickly. You have Sidney Powell, oh yeah, I was going to say full disclosure, Sidney Powell, in a prior life when I worked on Enron, she basically sued all of us. She filed disciplinary complaints against all of us repeatedly. They were all denied. And we all knew that she was, uh, let's just say politely, not a serious person. And the, she kept on filing repeat disciplinary proceedings against like 
all of us, all of them constantly got dismissed. And we were like, okay, the world needs to know. And then it happened. The Barbara world knows. <laughs> yeah. like that and she's, now she's the one facing the right. disciplinary Exactly. So she's also wants to have a fast trial. And then you have people who don't want a fast trial, namely Donald Trump. I mean, that's sort of like, you know, I'd like that never. And yeah, that's which isn't unusual for, no. you know, most defendants and that they don't want to go to trial anytime soon. As Amy Berman Jackson, the judge in D.C., used to say about courts, it's like the place where facts and law still matter. So if you're planning on spinning the public and not dealing with facts or law, it's really unhelpful to be in court. So that is something that the judge at the state level has to decide are we going to try them all together quickly? Are we going to parcel them out? Like, how are we going to deal with this? It's unusual for a judge to say, oh, I want 19 separate trials. I mean, it's just inefficient. The idea, though, that two people could say, I want a really quick trial, and that means the other 17 are going to have a quick trial, to me, doesn't feel like due process for those 17, because, the you know, it's a fast time to say, I want a trial in October. I mean, you're entitled as part of our criminal justice system to have sufficient time to prepare. And meanwhile, you have some of the co-defendants seeking removal, which we're going to come back exactly. to, right? Seeking to remove their case from state court to federal court. So all these things are in play. So let's just break this out a little bit. So to this afternoon, Judge McAfee will consider these motions to sever, Chesbro's motion, Powell's motion to sever their cases from the other defendants. And under Georgia law, it's really in the discretion of the trial judge to decide whether all the defendants who were jointly indicted together will go to trial together or whether it will be broken up into pieces. And as Andrew said, it, you know, it would be unusual to actually have all 19 sit together, even if that was ideal, because frankly, you know, they don't even really fit in a courtroom with all of their yeah. defense attorneys. It's and a it's, circus. It's a circus. Right. You know, each counsel is questioning the witnesses. That's 19 different cross-examinations. And so typically in big multi-defendant cases in federal court where we both practice and, and think about like the Oath Keepers case, right? You had a big indictment with over a dozen defendants. So the judge broke that into two different trials so that it was more manageable than having all 13 of them sitting in court. So that's one reason that sometimes to get broken up. But the law generally is that when, you know, it could be unfair to the defendants to be tried together, either because there's too many defendants, it could be too confusing to a jury about which law applies to which defendant, which counts apply to which defendant, that might be a reason. That might be their best defense for some of them. <laughs> yeah, that might be their best defense. Then there's also the sort of like the spillover effect that it could be that evidence that's only admissible against my co-defendant would end up getting used against me, and that would be unfair. So that's another reason you can move to sever what's called sever your cases. And then the other is we have antagonistic defenses. What I'm going to argue in defense is inconsistent with what he's going to argue in defense, and that prejudices us both. So these are sort of the things that a court will look at when considering whether to grant that severance. I was really surprised by Fannie Willis, not in that she charged this all together. Years ago, I charged the, a mob on Wall Street case in New York and had 100 defendants. But there was no way in God's green earth that I was planning on, nor would the federal judge have allowed me to have a trial of 100 or anything even close to that. I mean, you could this do it was in a all, stadium. Yeah, fun. I mean, it was all going to have to be for, for due process. I mean, yeah, for the reason it's, it's just, just it's just it's not good for the government. It's, uh, but you can charge it that way. But then you propose to the court, how you're going to sort of separate it out. And so I was surprised by Fannie Willis sort of saying, oh, yeah, we want to try all 19 together. I mean, that just isn't, I mean, if she really means it, I think it's a terrible, terrible strategy. And also, if you have two people who want to go quickly, which she has been fine with, then are you really saying you want the other 17 to go with the other two? Because I also think that's a, I personally think that's a due process problem. So I just don't know that she was serious about that particular idea. So I just wanted to, for a moment, talk about the federal component, because yep. all the thing that could just sort of gum up all of the works here. So you have McAfee sort of deciding what he wants to do. But the other piece of this is that you have the people who served in federal positions or allegedly served right. in federal positions, because we'll some of the that. some of the federal electors have sought to remove, saying that they served in federal positions. Um, Fannie Willis's brief is really good, saying, if you pretend to be a federal officer, you don't get to remove. It's like, you, you know what, that can be a pretend removal, which means you're staying in state court. That was, it was a really funny brief, because it was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. 
Um, that's at least that's how we would have that would have been the New York Brooklyn version yeah. of the final. But they're Willis. getting a hearing. They're getting a hearing yes, next week. Exactly. Judge so, Jones has given them their day in court. So that is a, a complicated issue. Meadows is obviously leading the charge. Meadows testified. It was ugly. Um, mm-hmm. So we don't know what the removal decision will be. We do want to talk about one really interesting aspect of the question the judge asked, which was really good and serious. I don't think the judge bought for a nanosecond Mark Meadows' views or testimony. I mean, I think reading the transcript, I mean, you could be wrong, but mm-hmm. I think I thought Meadows just seemed there's no polite way to say it. I mean, he lied. He lied. Or, right. Um, so. Um, and he, he just and, and he also, in the course of telling his lie about the fake electors, he also managed to also undermine the removal because he said, I was doing this for the campaign. So the whole point of the removal is that it has to be part of your office as chief of staff. If you say you're doing it as part of the campaign, well, guess what? That under the Hatch Act, that's got to be separate. So by hour three, he'd sort of forgotten the script and he just like announces that he did this for the campaign. And it's like, okay, game over. But if the removal is granted, then it's unclear who gets removed. There's conflict. There's not a lot of law on this, but like one idea is that everybody gets removed, which is a little weird because like that's sort of a happenstance. And we've just talked about Chesbro wanting a speedy trial, and he's entitled to that under Georgia law, and Powell wanting a speedy right. trial. So do they get mo- removed along yeah. with him? I, I mean, think I highly just, unlikely. Me too. Like, this <clears> is <throat> this is what I would call, like, our gut check, Spitball, which is, yeah, yeah but, which is, like, it just doesn't make any sense that that would, even though there is some conflicting case law, that it just seems unlikely that if there was a removal. Um, so and, one, a, and one line, there's a couple, there's several ways it could be split, but one, one line is, like, not all of of these co-defendants were federal officers. So yeah. they don't even they wouldn't have any federal officer removal sort of right under yeah. law to begin with. So why make why have them go? That's like a little pendant, right? Exactly. Like, sort of like grab them. So I wanted to ask you about the appellate process and like what happens if the judge grants it or denies it, like what what happens on appeal. Before I do that, let me just give you quickly the question that Judge Jones, the yes. federal district judge, asked, which I thought was really good. And I think nobody has really picked up on it. It's not in the briefs and responding yeah. to it. The judge said, what do I do? What's your the position of the parties if I think one but not all of the overt acts charged in the indictment is within the official role of a chief of staff. Meaning, remember, if it's campaign work, then no removal. But if it's chief of staff work, there is removal. And he said, but what if there's a little piece? What would the import of that be? Is that enough for me to say the whole thing should be removed? As you could imagine, Fonnie Willis said, well, first, it's all campaign, but I'm not going to fight your hypothetical. If if your hypothetical is I find one, it shouldn't matter saying that the gravamen of the case doesn't involve overt acts. I actually disagree with her in part for the reason I'll get to. And then Do you just make sure, spell that out a little bit like her yeah. point is he's charged with a conspiracy. And so we didn't even have to allege that Mark Meadows committed a single overt act. Our conspiracy right. is about he joined this agreement to violate Georgia law in a number of ways, knowing and intending for those results. Right. And that included things like, you know, the, the fraudulent elector scheme and pressuring uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to find 11,780 votes. So her point is, we didn't even have to have any overt acts. Exactly. So if there's one that was within the scope of your duties, it doesn't matter. It's, it's like surplusage. Yeah. Or, right. And Meadows, of course, said... Um, that you, it gets, you should remove it. Imagine a, a situation where there were 99 overt acts where they were within official scope and there was one that was, that was campaign. Is it really going to be the case that that doesn't get removed? In other words, let's talk about ratios here. And so that was like a pretty good point. I mean, it's somewhat counterfactual because it's not going to be 99 to 1. And the judge was sort of saying it's more like 1 to 99. But I think the reason Fonnie Willis was slightly off was, and this is like super technical, that under Georgia law, RICO does require the jury to find one 
overt act. As Mary said, it doesn't have to be an overt act by Mark Meadows. It could be any overt act that's charged, and they could have none as to Mark Meadows, and somebody else as part of the conspiracy committed an overt act. Not each conspirator has to commit an overt act, and it's not required. Um, but sitting here today, we don't know what the jury will find, right? So if the jury is told, here are the hundred overt acts, and um, among those overt acts is the one that the judge says is the one that Mark Meadows committed that the judge thinks is within his official duties, we don't know what the jury will find. So the jury could be finding its verdict based on that overt act. And if that's true, then that would be something that needs to be removed or should have been removed. So I would have dropped a footnote. Is everyone with me so far? Like, and sort and of let me sense? interject with one thing. Yeah. The reason for it entitling him to removal is something we talked about on the podcast last week is because he might then have a defense and an immunity defense that I can't even be tried for this crime yeah. because I was acting within my official responsibilities as a federal official doing what was necessary and proper to carry out those responsibilities. So from his perspective, if the jury decided on that one overt act, his rights have been right. violated. So if I were Fannie Willis, I would have dropped a footnote that said, Yes, as we said, we think all of it is campaign related. But judge, if you disagree, whatever overt act as to Mark Meadows you think is official, an act or acts, plural, we will not rely on that when we get to the trial phase. In other words, we will not submit that one to the jury. So you will know that the jury cannot be finding guilt based on that. And that sort of cuts it out and carves it out. Um, and the reason I think she needed to do that, it's not clear what Judge Jones will do on his own because Judge Jones could take the view, which is he could propose that and say, you know, if it's not cut out, if it's not this, then then I'm going to do that. And, and, and so he, he sort of cures it that way. But he could also say, look, I've got an indictment. This is the indictment. I've been asked to decide whether it's removed. There's an overt act here that's alleged that could be the basis. And like, I'm just going to deal with what's before me. My job is not to cure or not cure. I'm just ruling what's before him. And he hasn't accepted the case yet, really, right? Yeah. So it uh, wouldn't be his job to order it so much stricken, but yeah. they should be offering, if you find one of these within his official duties, we'll strike it yeah. and we won't offer evidence. So it'll be interesting. I mean, obviously, this could come down any day now. Yeah. I mean, we're sort Maybe of waiting. Maybe while we're talking. Let me segue, because yeah. I know we want to get to questions. Because we've been talking about immunity for Mark Meadows, remembering his role of chief of staff, and coming up next week is a hearing on Clark's motion, Clark, who was the former acting assistant attorney general, who the president wanted to make the acting attorney general so that he, he, could, wait, he did he for did, a day, part of a day, for a day. seems to have done it for part of a day. He also has filed a removal motion, as have these three presidential electors. And so those will get argued next week. But this immunity question leads us back to the January 6th case pending here in federal court right down the street, because one of the things that happened last Monday at the hearing before Judge Chutkin, Judge Tanya Chutkin, who has this case, when they were discussing the scheduling of a trial date, one of the things that Mr. Laro, who's Mr. Trump's attorney, said is, there's going to be so many motions, Your Honor. There's no way this case can go to trial uh, when the government wants or even when the court ends up ultimately setting it. There's going to be so many motions and we'll be filing this week or next. So here we are in the middle of next week, an executive immunity motion, meaning the former president is immune from being tried for any of these charges that he's been indicted on because he was performing them in his role as the president of the United States. These are within the, what's called the outer bounds of his outer official, perimeter, outer perimeter yes. of his official responsibilities. And we will have a whole nother podcast where we dive into whether we think that uh, some of the things he did are actually within the scope of what a president of the United States is expected to and authorized to do under Article 2 of the Constitution. I was going to say something totally like glib and superficial, which is the outer perimeter that works if we're, the outer perimeter goes to Mars. Yeah, well, right. right. Or beyond. Yeah, is that, that's, is that qualify as glib and superficial? Well, no, no, that's that's actually 
good legal argument. Yeah. Okay. Um, Except I was trained in Brooklyn. You're like, more like the appellate serious yeah. lawyer here. I, I'm here for embroidery. Yeah. Um, <laughs> by the way, so, I have a really interesting fact that I learned this morning. It's about the Tanya Chutkin March 4th date mm -hmm. that she picked um, for the trial. You know, she heard both sides. She had lots of argument and, on, and briefing on it before she picked that date. Yep. Um, so do you, this, this was, I'll give you the question. Do you know the significance of March 4th? Well, I know it's the day before Super Tuesday. Interesting. Nope. But there's another significance, but I forgot what it yeah, was. Yeah, it's historical significance of March 4th. Anybody? Exactly. So March I want to repeat that because I don't know if she'd have been picked up for yes. the podcast. Used to be the inauguration day, says one of our guests. Exactly. And so March 4th, before it was changed, and we had January 20th, and the first day that Congress would sit was March 4th. Um, and so just given the nature of what this is about, I just can't imagine that that was lost into Chuck and yeah. that that was the date. I do not think back to the fact that Super Tuesday is the next day. I don't think that had anything Nothing. to do. And I don't think she probably even yes. was aware of it at the time she set the date. Um, but very quickly before we transition to, to questions, this immunity argument when it comes, one of the things that's interesting about this, and this is, also applies to removal, is if that is denied, this is something that would I think, be appealable. Um, the Supreme Court has never directly ruled on that because we haven't had a former president be charged with a crime where he... Uh, thank God. Thank God. Uh, hopefully it'll never happen again. But in other contexts that are so analogous, these are things that are appealable interlocutorily, which means before you've come to the end of the case. In criminal prosecutions, generally, defendants have to wait till their case is completed, then they can appeal and they can allege all the different things they think that the court did wrong. But there are a few times when you can appeal even before you go to trial. And one is when um, you are arguing that going to trial would violate your your uh, constitutional right not to be put in jeopardy twice, so double jeopardy. And the idea there is that's a right not to even have the burden of going to trial twice. Right. So if you had to wait till after you've gone to trial a second time before you could appeal it, you would you would already have had yeah. your constitutional rights infringed on. The speech or de debate clause, Congress members have been able to successfully appeal interlocutorily to say, if they were denied uh, um, the right to immunity based on the speech or debate clause to say, again, they because of that immunity, they shouldn't av even have to suffer the burden of trial. So there's no reason to think that executive immunity, otherwise, other than the fact that it doesn't appear explicitly in the Constitution the way that speech or debate does or double jeopardy, there's no reason to believe that that also wouldn't be something that's appealable, particularly because the Supreme Court has recognized the appealability of uh, absolute immunity for a president in civil cases. And here we're talking about a criminal case where there, where his liberty is at stake. So Mary, does that mean just to, to, um, make Play sure, make, make sure everyone understands the import of what you're saying is that if not only could, is it appealable, but the Supreme Court, if it does, if it takes its sweet time, that even though March 4th is the date that Judge Chuck can picked, that if this is appealed, um, which there's no reason it wouldn't be that the court could stay either the appellate court, which I assume is going to act very quickly given and the its DC history, has acted quickly yeah, before. Very yeah. like we want to brief tonight. Yes. <laughs> um, right. So um, that that's an, a real life example. Yeah. Um, and uh, but the Supreme Court, you know, it could act relatively quickly, like, but it could also stay the case, getting briefs, etc. So that. And there would be it could out delay of judge, right? Yeah, uh, you know, and we we can talk a lot more about yeah. this. And similarly, the removal motions—if these are denied, if they're denied, you know, if these are based on immunity, yeah. those under right. by law are appealed. On, on the other hand, the removal, the statute does not it stay says, the does underlying not, case. It's, the federal removal <clears throat> in Georgia does not stay the underlying case, so that you could have a lot of that litigation, but that's going to proceed apace. That's right. You just can't have like a final verdict until the removal piece right. is over. So there's less of a concern in Georgia, but this Supreme Court one, Mary's right to sort of keep your eye out for the Supreme Court and whether there are enough votes to issue a stay. More Prosecuting Donald Trump 
live at Georgetown Law in just a moment. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So we have like a bunch of people who had submitted questions before and we selected some. We had, they were really fantastic questions. We tried to pick ones that we thought would be of general interest. And then we'll try and get through those and then turn it over to any questions that you just have in general. Hi there. My name is Jesse and I'm a fresh new first year law student here at Georgetown. I just moved from Brooklyn where I had been watching <laughs> reading, listening to your analyses for years. I'm wondering about jury selection. If you were questioning prospective jurors, how would your questions differ among D.C., Fulton County, and Southern Florida jury pools? And what qualities in prospective jurors would you hope to determine with your questions? That is a really interesting question. You know, so it sort of depends on the defense versus the prosecution. Um, I've picked a lot of juries in all sorts of locations. So just thinking of special counsel Mueller and the cases we did there, the defense basically wants to know and at times has even asked the judge, who did you vote for? I mean, and so that's not allowed. I mean, I'd be shocked if a judge allowed that. Um, But then all the questions the defense asks are basically just a proxy for that. So it's like, don't tell me who you voted for, but just tell me what your views are of Hillary Clinton. You know, it's like, you know, and then compare that to your views of Donald Trump. I mean, so like it it all becomes just a a proxy game on the defense side. Um, For the prosecution, I think there are different views of like different prosecutors have different views of what they're looking for. I always have this view, which is like I I brought the case because I think I'm right. Otherwise, I wouldn't have brought the case. And if I think I'm right, I want the smartest jury possible to understand the proof and the arguments that are made and to not get fooled or confused and I don't mean that in a bad way for the defense lawyers. The defense lawyers have a job to do. I've been a defense lawyer. Th- their job it, is to make it confusing and complicated and and gray. And gray is not good for the government and it's good for the defense. So you, I always want the smartest jury possible. So that's something I usually look for. Um, the biggest issue for both sides in terms of what they're looking for, regardless of jurisdiction, is the government is going to want a jury where people will follow their oaths and they will actually make up their minds based on the facts in court and the law is given to them by the judge. And the defense, um, depending on the strength of the case, is usually that's the last thing they want. They're looking for the one um, holdout juror. They're looking for, is there, you want as many sort of erratic people as you can find to be on the jury because you only need one. It's very hard in these cases for me to think that there's going to be a full out acquittal. An acquittal, you need to have 12 unanimous jurors who find that there was not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It has to be unanimous to have an acquittal or a conviction. But for the defense, it's always viewed as a huge win to have a hung jury, which is there's no verdict because but you only need one. And the biggest problem for the government in a high profile profile case, and I've seen this in Enron, is you have somebody who wants to get on a jury. Then most people are sitting there not waking up in the morning going, I can't wait to do jury service. But in a high profile matter, that's the problem is somebody who wants to get on the jury and is not candid. In one of our trials in Enron, um, the jury didn't come back for 10 days because juror number one 
decided he was going to write a book about the case. And so all of the exhibits that were brought into the jury room, he was copying them down because he wanted to write a book. This, by the way, could never happen in New York because I think there would have been a murder case to go along with our case because like the, the other 11 jurors would be like, okay, we have a solution for this. Um, cause that's, there's just, that's, there's not going to happen. Um, but this was in Houston. People are much more polite. So they just waited for him to write things down. I was like curled up in a fetal position in my hotel room waiting for the jury to come back. And then when he was finished copying down the, the things, he voted to convict. Now, we were lucky because he voted to convict and we were in the prosecution. But like that's what you're worried about is the erratic person from both sides for different reasons. So and it's particularly know. concerning, you know, for the government here because, you know, it takes unanimous jury to convict, but it only takes one juror to hang a trial. And that doesn't mean acquittal. In fact, far, far from it. It could be just one juror is unwilling to follow the the rules. But in a case like this, that would be portrayed by Mr. Trump as a win, as a victory. And so it's a referendum. I mean, I remember when the first Manafort case went, Bob Mueller was like, you know, you have to win. Yeah, right. Because it was going to be a referendum on the prosecution. Absolutely. So, okay, to move on. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ethan. I'm a 2L here at Georgetown. Go Hoyas. I guess to set the table for my question is that there seems to be a real possibility that Mr. Trump wins the 2024 election and is then subsequently found guilty of one or more of his charges. So my question is, what happens in that situation? Um, can he be removed? Who would enforce that removal? And as a sitting president, what would his legal defenses be? We don't have any real answers to those questions. They're great questions. Uh, I think we have a lot of things we can analogize to. So certainly there would be arguments if a trial did not even start until after he was sworn in as president. He would make arguments that under Article 2, his obligations and responsibilities as a president of the United States and as a commander in chief were completely incompatible with having to sit in a trial and that any trial should be delayed until after his time in office. And certainly there's some precedent for some delay of things while a president is sitting in office. And he could make that argument with respect to, for instance, the state case. That's the, right. The Georgia case. He could be like, delay it because I'm currently the president. And we can do that. We can do this trial later. We can do it later. That's right. He also, to your point of let's assume the trial did go forward. Let's assume he was convicted. Could he be removed? I think the only basis, I mean, there's no basis right now in law for that type of removal other than in impeachment. And, you know, that's been tried twice before unsuccessfully. Um, But it's possible, depending on what the convictions were for, there could be an argument under the 14th Amendment, Article 3, that he engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States and therefore is ineligible to serve. Now, as we've talked a little bit about on the podcast, and probably many of you are just tracking because it's been the subject of a lot of discussion in the media and some a scholarship uh, written by some conservative law professors and, and other great commentary by other conservatives, including former Judge um, Michael Ludig, that he's disqualified right now, that we don't need criminal convictions for anything. It doesn't have to be a conviction for insurrection. It doesn't have to be con- conviction for sedition, that his actions that we know of, because they're publicly documented, already disqualify him from office. That is something that we are already starting to see litigation. I just had an email that I haven't even opened yet. I just saw the first phrase of it right before I walked in this room today, that the first case is being brought in Colorado. So um, this is an issue that may get up through the courts before the election. But that doesn't mean that there couldn't be a different way of thinking about it, um, you know, after the election, if he were to be convicted of things that somehow fell within that. Um, And then there's also the question of, you know, we've talked before about if he were convicted before and were sentenced to some sort of prison time, could he still be president from prison? I mean, the technical legal answer is there's not a bar to that. The practical answer is you can't really be the leader of the United States of America from prison. It's not practical. Um, And so... uh, Mary, you're just out on a limb there. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I think all kinds of unprecedented discussions and arguments uh, that we've just never, ever had to deal with would be made to the courts. One one quick note is with respect to the federal 
cases. Oh, right. Um, so um, with respect to Mar-a-Lago, the Florida case, or in the D.C. case, the federal level, um, if Donald Trump or an ally were to become president, they can simply have the Department of Justice end the case. If it hadn't gone to trial, they can just dismiss it, even if it's gone to trial. Um, so think of Michael Flynn. He had pled guilty, and um, Attorney General Barr made a motion like to basically sit in support of the idea that he should just get his plea back and the case should go away. And, you know, so, it's, it's so interesting because, you, don't even get into that. you know, technically you need the judge's approval, right, to right. dismiss. But uh, that case involving Michael Flynn got argued to the judge, got, even went up on appeal on this issue yeah. of could a judge really deny that when the government says we're not going to prosecute. Right. And, you know, worse comes to worse, the, the president pardons himself, pardons exactly. others, or his ally pardons him. Pardon himself raises another set of legal issues for another time. Okay. More prosecuting Donald Trump live at Georgetown Law in just a moment. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hi, uh, my name is Bill. I actually work with Mary at ICAP, so it's wonderful to have you guys here. My question also deals to some extent with timing. There's been a lot of discussion, including already today, about uh, when the trials uh, of Donald Trump might go forward. But of course, even after a trial, there'll be subsequent appeals and other things. So what do you think is the probability that Donald Trump will spend one or more days in prison on or before next November 5th uh, election day? And do you agree with me that it's probably zero? You know, in each case, he faces significant prison time, less so in the New York case, but uh, the federal cases for sure. Certainly, the statutes and the guidelines call for prison time. But can, can I just yep. just say we have the data? Um, you have a March fourth D.C. federal case. You have at least Maybe. currently <laughs> a um, late March yep. Manhattan case. A, a little unclear because Judge Shutkin talked to that judge about whether it was okay for her to get, take the March fourth mm -hmm. date. So it's unclear whether that date will stick. And then we have a May trial date in Florida. So those are sort of the three. And then the Georgia one's got a slot in there somewhere. Yes. Yeah, so, somehow. Right. Yeah, right. So assuming one of these gets to trial, and I think one should get to trial, whether more than one gets to trial, I'm a lot less um, confident of. Uh, and assuming there's a conviction, um, as those who uh, have either practiced or studied criminal law knows, you don't go to sentencing the day you're convicted. There's a period of time where the pre-sentence report writer writes a report, your attorneys make arguments about the sentence. We've just seen that, you know, over the last few months in the Proud Boys trial and the Oath Keepers trial, and it happens all the time. Minimum of 60 days. Yeah. Uh, but uh, of course, Mr. Without, Trump's unless there's a waiver by the defense, which yeah. there won't be. Yeah, right. Exactly. He's not going to be rushing to sentencing. Yeah. And so, again, this would be another thing that he wants to delay. Unless the court were to find that he is a risk of flight or a danger to the community, uh, he would be released pending sentencing. That's typical and ordinary in cases that don't involve sort of violence or risk of flight. Um, or obstruction. Yes, yes, uh, that's Just true. Just throwing it out there. Yes, yes. Um, and I remember then, Man Manafort was remanded because he obstructed while out on bail. While out, yeah. And so that's a possibility that he could he could write I just his to own. Give something yes, positive yeah, that's right. That's right. It's not all bad news. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then even once sentenced, even assuming that prison time is part of a sentence, he could appeal his conviction at that point after sentencing, and he could seek to 
remain out on bail pending his appeal. And the statute, when you read it, you would think that he wouldn't be able to do that if found guilty. And certainly as prosecutors, we've argued plenty of times, the presumption now is that you will start serving your sentence. And if you eventually get your conviction reversed, then we'll deal with things at that time. But the reality is, particularly in white collar cases, that oftentimes judges will say, well, there's a legal issue here and we will let the person stay out of prison on bond while this appeal takes place, even though the standard should be that the legal issue is likely to result yes. in reversal. And, you know, in many cases, I don't think the judges actually think that, but they're right. they're hesitant often to right. incarcerate. Because the idea is like, should the, where I'm sending the person in jail and there's some chance that the, if the court reverses, then they've actually done jail time when they shouldn't have. Right. Um, Steve Bannon is a good example because he was convicted. He just, down, just the road, down the street and he's out pending appeal. Um, one thing that just to put a gloss on the question is you could have a situation where Judge Chuckin has her trial on around March 4th that you have a verdict and assuming it's a guilty verdict and that you have a sentencing before even the Republican convention, but certainly before the general election. So you may not have him going to jail, but you could have a sentence from Judge Chuckin and um, I do of think, jail time, potentially. And yeah. potentially of jail time. My own view, just looking at the Enrique Tarrio decision by Judge Kelly, a conservative federal district judge, again, right down the road, where the highest sentence so far is 22 years, is I think that puts a, just enormous pressure on the for the rule of law that Donald Trump would go to jail and um, would be sentenced to, j- to prison time. I mean, you have the leader of the Oath Keepers going to, to jail for a significant time, the leader of the Proud Boys, the idea that the leader of those leaders would not do jail time. And remember, Rico Terrio was not there on January 6th. And actually, he was less there than Donald Trump was. That's right. So I, I, I just think it's important, especially if we're in Georgetown, where people are so close to, we can see the Capitol from here. The district judges who are deciding this are right down the road. They're dealing with scores and scores and scores of people who they are sentencing to jail for what happened. And whether appointed by Donald Trump or any other judge, they've been very uniform in being quite vocal and poignant about what happened that day. And um, Mr. Trump's role in what happened. Exactly. Uh, yeah. and so, not, not as an excuse, and people are being held accountable, but they recognize that, that yeah. the people that who are being held accountable did this because Mr. Trump asked them to. Yeah. So I just think for Judge Chutkin, she'll make her, her mind if there's a guilty verdict. But I just think the idea that she would not sentence him to jail, I I personally think is remote. She strikes me as an extremely good judge. You obviously know her a lot better than I do. So that's like one thing that could happen is even if he doesn't serve a day, that you actually have this, I think, very important pronouncement from a jury and from a judge. All right. Good afternoon. How are you? Um, I'm Emmett. I'm an LLM here. And my question is, to what extent are the obstruction findings from the actual Mueller report of evidentiary weight or help establish a pattern of practice in the current uh, obstruction charges? I think I'm you better take, take that. that one, Andrew. <laughs> it's got your um, name all over it. This might sound a little boring, but it's like the food stirred with the rules of evidence. So the the report itself and findings in the report are not admissible under the rules of evidence. You need to have sort of non-hearsay evidence. So I'm going to take that question as more if you wanted to put on proof of that obstruction. So for instance, if you wanted to call Don McGahn, just to take the most notorious or salacious or damning of the pieces of evidence in volume two of the Mueller report, Don McGahn, I'm just going to give you the overview, which is, he said, I was asked by the former president to say that I was never told by the former president to fire Robert Mueller and that I should write an affidavit, a statement to that effect, and I should give it to Donald Trump so he can put it in a safe to hold it over my head. And and he said, I'm not doing that because that's not what happened. And he came in and told the Mueller team, this is what the foreign president asked me to do. That would then be competent evidence because you'd have a firsthand percipient witness talking about what the defendant did. 
Now that's that's um, rules of evidence A. <laughs> now, now you get rules of evidence B. You didn't think you were going to go to law school, did you? But you are. So if you're taking evidence, this is like a little crash course. So the it's it's called 404B evidence, which is sort of other crime evidence. So you have what's in the indictment, but a lot of times the prosecution says, but there's context that we want to give the jury to what happened here. And you can't put that evidence to show that somebody acted out of a propensity to commit crime, but you can show it for all sorts of reasons, like absence of mistake. Um, here's a, a really motive, good, intent. Right. So here's a good example of how it could, I think, come up. If Donald Trump says, I was just following the advice of my counsel, like I'm a law abiding person and my lawyers tell me to do this and that's what I do because when lawyers tell me to do something, I stay within straight and narrow. So um, let's say that's what he wants to argue. You might want to say, but see Evan Corcoran, um, the lawyer who he lied to, 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 to allegedly to obstruct in the Mar-a-Lago case. And that's where if he would just say, I follow the rule of law and I follow what lawyers tell me to do and lawyers tell me about the elector scheme, you might want to go, hmm, let's see, let me think of an example where that's not true. Um, the White House counsel, you directly asked him to obstruct justice, both by firing Mueller and then lying about it. Um, so that would be a, a, a way to put it in, not for propensity, that's the improper reason, but to rebut the claim of I am a law-abiding person who follows what my my lawyers say. So it could play a role. There's no question that the prosecution team is going to be aware of all of that and is going to be thinking about all of the evidence outside of the four corners of the indictment in order to make their case. Hi, uh, my name is Ash. I'm a 1L here. Uh, thank you for, for putting this event on. I really appreciate your insight on this matter. Uh, my question pertains televising the trials. So considering that these trials are starting up soon or they already have, um, should they be televised? Can they be televised? And if so, what is the impact that that would have um, on this country and in our democracy as a whole? Thank you. I want to start out and then I'll get your views. So the federal rules right now prohibit um, live broadcasting of trials. And so that's not something that Judge Chutkin or even Judge Cannon in Florida can say, oh, I'm just going to violate those federal rules and we're going to let cameras in the courtroom. So that would take a change to the rules, which you, the rules get approved by the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that would take sort of a, a big deal change that I don't particularly expect to happen. Georgia rules, as we know, uh, Georgia does allow for live broadcasting of trials and other criminal proceedings. And in fact, at one o'clock today, we can watch this motions hearing in front of the Georgia judge. So, you know, one advantage to the Georgia case going to trial is it would be televised. All of America and all of the world would get to see how our criminal justice system works, how defendants are afforded their rights to due process. They'd get to see the evidence presented against the former president. They'd get to make their own assessments of his culpability and whether he should really be president of the United States again. And that's all, I think, a good thing. And my general position on cameras in the courtroom is I think that uh, for transparency and so that the American public can better understand how our criminal justice system operates, we should have criminal trials generally uh, be televised uh, with some exceptions for particularly vulnerable victims and witnesses, children, etc. Things like that. Some exceptions as a former prosecutor, I'm very sensitive to that. But the one hesitation I have with this is unlike 99.9% of defendants who face trials, Mr. Trump will capitalize on a televised trial. He is already using the four indictments to raise money. The data show he's been pretty successful at raising money. Uh, each time there's a new indictment or a new ruling, he makes bank. Now he's spending a lot on, um, or his PACs are spending a lot on legal counsel, but still he is using, and he's as much as said before the Georgia indictment, if there's a fourth indictment, you know, I'm running on that. And, and so in a way it's just feeding that because imagine every day of trial, him basically using social media to post uh, how persecuted he is, how weaponized the Department of Justice is, or how weaponized the, the Georgia D District Attorney is. And so 
I do have some reluctance here to hand that to him, to, to give him the ability to raise money and, and campaign on what really should be just the, the execution of the rule of law in the United States. So we famously agree on everything. So <laughs> we're still working on coming up with something to disagree on to make this a little bit more entertaining. There's no question it's not an unmitigated Yes. I mean, there are some downsides to the televised, but I think it's, I think by far worth it. And I sort of view it through my personal lens of thinking about the Mueller report versus the January 6th committee. And people take in their information differently. And it's no longer the case that like we we read lots and say we're like oh a four hundred page dense turgid, sure. some would say turgid report great <laughs> like you know, that's what I, I can't bring wait me a to cocktail do and yeah. let's go right so but the January sixth committee did yeah. such amazing work and brought it to life and was so much more they had a report but they also I won't say spoon fed it but they thought of different ways to make it accessible to people. Mm -hmm. And I just think with somebody who is dealing with spin all the time and just believe what I say, um, I think that it is useful to have the January 6th committee hearings. I'm old enough to remember the Watergate hearings. I just think how, there's a group of people who will, that will still affect you. And no, you're not going to affect everybody all the time. And I just feel like it's the right thing to do, even if it gets abused and even with some of the downsides. As, a, as I, I think there's a reason, for instance, that certain people want to remove the Georgia case to federal court. And one of them is that it would prevent cameras from being in the courtroom. Certainly um, Mark Meadows does not want his trial to be televised. Exactly. So I just want to thank everyone here for coming uh, at Georgetown, the whole Georgetown community, everyone at Georgetown who helped set up here today from technical assistance, IT, events people, everyone from MSNBC for traveling down here from New York City to visit the capital of the United States of America, and my good friend That's and colleague, Andrew, <laughs> for joining me here today. The senior producer for this show is Alicia Conley. Jessica Schrecker and Ivy Green are segment producers. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Fernando Aruda, Harry Colhane, and Katherine Anderson are our audio engineers. Jan Maris Perez is the associate producer. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio, and Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. I think my day job is now going to be usurped. I'm done. That's it. Thanks, everyone. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.